Hi, and welcome to episode 110 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, and my guest today is Robin Ely. We've all been there, we've seen an artwork and do a double take. Surely that cannot be a painting, it must be a photo. But as we get closer and read the label, sure enough, it is paint, expertly applied to create the deceptive illusion of reality. I am in awe of these artists because it is a skill not easily acquired and it's certainly not for every painter. For these hyperrealist artists, the step of making the reference material is often the most important, and the time-consuming execution of the painting requires expertise, which is often finessed over years of practice, and Robin Ely is a highly skilled painter in this style. He's been a finalist in many art prizes, including the Archibald, the Doug Moran National Portrait Prize, the UTIC Memorial Still Life Prize and others, and his work is held in private collections and public institutions around the world. In this episode, you're going to hear all about how Robin came to painting, something he didn't embark on until he was 27, but he hit the ground running. A teacher of art as well, he's generous with advice, as all who follow him on Instagram and Facebook would know. His most recent body of work has to be seen to be believed. Paintings of masterpieces like the Mona Lisa and Girl with a Pearl Earring, but wrapped in plastic. And he even continues the illusion beyond the canvas support, where he's extended the edges to heighten the appearance of the plastic wrapping around the edges of the painting. But he's also created amazingly innovative works like The Binary Project. If you have time after listening to this episode, click on the link on the website talkingwithpainters.com or find the link in the podcast notes to see the YouTube video about it. It involves the participation of thousands of people around the world and is absolutely mind-blowing. And that's the thing about this artist. He's always pushing the boundaries of what a painting can be. Robin is an Australian living in LA and I recorded this remotely with Robin in his studio, which is just an elevator ride up to the top of the apartment block in which he lives. And as usual, I start the conversation by asking him what were his memories of art as a child? Yeah, well, my memories of art actually go back to London. Um, I vividly remember we, we lived in a small two-story house and there was a room upstairs that had a small window and I can close my eyes and picture it um I can I can have this connection between looking out this window and drawing and I, I we moved when I was three back to Australia my dad's an Adelaide boy and um, he was working in London where he met my mum who's uh, Chinese and so they they met in London I had my sister and then myself but I re- remember drawing in this room and I can the thing that I remember most is um, that we had this uh, Union Jack tin tray that was filled with crayons, and I'd always pick the crayons off of that tray and I'd draw pictures. Um, <laughs> and that was my earliest memory of art. And I actually, I have, I keep that tray. I've got it in my studio right now as a connection back to my back to my past. But um, wow. the, the funny, the funny story is um, when we moved back when we moved back to Australia. Um, I can the the sort of the, the the moment that's sort of written into Ely family law is this moment in my life where I decided that I really just wanted all I wanted to do was draw, um, and it was inspired by the least creative and artistic person in my family. My, my mother is incredibly artistic. Different time, different place. She would have been an artist. She is the most gifted person I've I've, I've ever known in that respect. Mm. 
My father is an accountant with absolutely no um, ability as an artist. An appreciation <laughs> for it, but no ability. But I can remember when I was about five years old, I went to my dad and asked him to draw a picture of a hammerhead shark. And um, this is a man who has ne- hasn't probably hasn't drawn a picture since he um, was was my age at the time. So, yeah. um, but I can remember he he would always do his sums on a on a lined piece of A4 paper for he, when he was doing his um, doing his, his work. And he got out his paper and he got out his nice, um, he, he collects pens, he got out a nice pen. And this man who had never drawn, a, had him drawn a picture in decades, sat down with his son and drew a hammerhead shark. And I, I don't underestimate how difficult that was for him because, you know, he's a little kid who's got these expectations. He drew this thing and when I saw it, for me, it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. I can still see it in my mind and when I saw my dad draw that that was it I was drawing from that day on um, and I started out drawing um, I just started out drawing Garfield comics I was obsessed with Garfield as a kid yeah. so that's all I would draw and then as I got older I became obsessed with basketball and so i just draw basketball players like it started off as cartoons and then um, it evolved into more realistic drawings I just I would have these magazines and I'd just draw pictures from the magazines oh right so was that in pencil yeah, just pencil, um, which was kind of a, a great way to start, but it took me a long time to escape the pencil. But um, for me, the art was, was this thing that um, I was good at, and because I was good at it, and I was a shy, kind of a nervous kid, um, it was the thing that I really I, I found solace in, and somewhere where I could, be, where I could feel confident and, and feel that I was good at something was when I stepped in sort of social situations, I was really, really nervous and, and was and was scared that no one would like me. So I'd come home and I'd just draw. And that was for me like the, the, the I guess, my safe safe place as a child and, um, why, and why I kept doing it as I grew older and into my teens. And so that would be something you would do in your spare time. You would gravitate towards that. Yeah, I... I did two things as a as a um, as a child and as a um, adolescent. And first one was play basketball every single day. Um, that was my truest obsession, and people knew me for that. People in school, like I had obviously basketball teammates, but um, I was the basketball kid. Um, but then I would come home from practice and I'd shower. Sometimes not even shower, and I'd go up to we had this this sort of this room in our house. Um, that I would sit up, set up a table in, and I just start drawing, and I would just draw until I couldn't draw anymore, and I'd fall asleep, go to bed, get up the next morning, and start drawing again. And this was the side of me that no one really knew about, unless you happened to be one of the people that took an art class with me in high school. Uh, but again, it was going from one thing, which basketball, which which gave me sort of uh, confidence and. Um, and he gets a sense of solace and mm-hmm. then to straight home to, to the other thing. It was, it was kind of all about escaping actually socially interacting with people, I think, now yeah. that I look back on it. That's so interesting yeah. because you ordinarily wouldn't think about sort of people, uh, sport and, and art to be hand in hand. But I have heard of other artists who are like that, mm. actually, that really, really pursue sport at an elite level. And, in fact, you did pursue sport at an elite level, didn't you? Because you went to America on that basis. Is yeah, that right? Yeah, I, I was not as elite as I was hoping to be. Um, I, I, <laughs> I held aspirations um, to at least have a few years as a professional athlete, but I just flat out just wasn't good enough. And that kind of dawned on me um, right towards the end of my 
career basketball career in college over here so I came to the US and played college basketball but it was kind of the two things went hand in hand as I was realizing I wasn't good enough or maybe because I was realizing I wasn't good enough my interest in playing the sport began to decrease but it was also that time that I became aware of the possibility of actually having a career um, making pictures. I studied for a couple of years. I was I was intent on studying psychology, being uh, moving into psychology, some some profession, some professional form. Mm. But then I had to take an art class, and when I took that art class, we had a speaker come in and show us his work as an illustrator. And as soon as he opened up his portfolio and he showed me, because I had I had no interest in in doing paintings or drawings and showing them in a gallery. That just seemed just ludicrous to me. Um, but when he opened his, I know. But he opened his portfolio, and there was these drawings that were done for magazines and drawings that were done for um, commercial purposes, and that made more sense to me, and kind of excited me because it was like problem solving. Like you get a you get an assignment, and you get to solve the problem visually. And so I literally chased him down in the parking lot after the after the class, and. I said, I said, oh, he's one of my best friends now. But um, I said, I said, Mr. Anderson, like, how do I do this? How how do I make a career out of this? So he went on to teach me at the college the following year, and mentor me into my uh, my first career, which was as a um, commercial illustrator. Oh right, and what sort of things? What did that involve? That sort of work? Well. Um, it's a it's a it's a profession that exists in Australia, but not quite in the form that I was pursuing it. So it was a it was an odd one because I really wanted to do editorial illustration, which is uh, where a magazine has a story and uh, you do a painting to accompany the story. And that's a that's a quirky industry that really only exists in America. And so I was living back in Australia at this time, and I would um, fly to New York every year and show my portfolio around. And eventually, I developed client a client list that contained like. Uh, Time Magazine, Wall Street Journal, Forbes Magazine, Village Voice, all these like major publications. For instance, I did uh, when Barack Obama was elected, I did the first um, portrait of Barack Obama for the Wall Street Journal uh, as Abraham Lincoln. And um, wow! So did they provide a photo? No, it's all on me. It's all on me. So I got I've got to sort of compile it from different resources, and it was a it was the perfect way to develop problem solving skills um the ability to trust my intuition as a as a as an image maker not just a problem solver but an image maker and also the way to make something look good it's like to, to take an idea out of your head and get it onto a canvas or an illustration board at the time which is what i was using mm. um so like working out how to light something in a way that that worked and made it look the way i needed it because there's a lot of like i'd find a photograph of of george bush but I needed to put him in a in a in the desert on a on a camel, right? And so, like, I'd need to photograph myself pretending to ride a camel. But then I'd have to find a photograph of a camel, um, that and then light it the same the same angle and all sort of stitch it together and then paint it to make it look like it was a seamless image. And so, while while the two industries never don't don't sort of collide at all they're like ships passing in the night like uh, illustration of fine art it was the the ability to solve problems and like to to sort of develop my um artistic muscles i guess that when i eventually decided to change and 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 paint in a more traditional sense i could hit the ground running because i did i'd solved all those problems and i'd figured them all out the only thing i hadn't figured out was 
how to oil paint. Yeah, well, that's exactly what I was going to ask you because I understand you actually taught yourself to paint. Is that right? Yeah, so that that's how I started. But I actually painting for me, and this may sound strange because I I paint basically ten hours a day, seven days a week. But it took me until I was uh, twenty. 27, almost 28 years old before I did my first sort of fully-fledged acrylic painting, my first fully-fledged painting. I was able to to scrape through college with an arts degree, only taking one sort of very basic painting course. But I was so fixated on the emotional payoff of making something beautiful, which stretches all the way back to my childhood, that I couldn't do anything but draw with pencil because that was the thing that I was good at and the thing that was safe and the thing that I just clung on to until I was almost 28 years old. It got to the point where I was had learned how to use, use everything except a paintbrush. And so I was like cobbling together these results with pen and ink, watercolor, uh, pencil, all, that, and, and it was just this mishmash of, of different media that... Um, didn't quite get the result I wanted. I knew that I really just had to paint. And so one day I just committed to making a painting. It was very difficult for me. But when I finished it, I, I couldn't believe that I'd, I'd done it. And so I I stuck with it every day since then. But that was still, that was acrylic paint. I didn't know how to oil paint. And so I tried to take courses, but the courses, the teachers never taught. They just set up a still life and said, hey, here you go, paint this or here here's a grayscale, paint a grayscale. No explanation of why, no explanation of how to use the materials. The story I tell is just like, was is it was devastating to me at the time, but kind of humorous now. It was my first oil painting class. I was, I was in my 30s, right? And I'm taking this oil painting class, hoping to learn everything. And uh, after the first class, he, we had to paint a grayscale. And I, I, we packed up, I took my brushes, I took my palette and... and uh, and my paints outside I found a tap outside and I turned the tap on and I started trying to wash the oil paint off my brush <laughs> under under a running tap and it's not coming off and I'm like what's going on with this paint it's not coming off the, acry- the acrylic paint comes off really easily why isn't this oil paint coming off and then it kind of dawned on me that I had this bottle of solvent that I was instructed to buy and he'd ne- they'd never told me like what it was for and I lasted a couple more classes because I'm I'm a real sponge of informa- like with information. I, I'm just I have a really I have, I'm I'm super intense with that stuff, and it wasn't giving it to me. And so I instead turned to DVDs and I turned to books. Um, one book in particular it was called it's called Alla Prima, and um, it's really it's kind of um, it's sad that we're discussing this today because the author of that book passed away over the weekend. His name's Richard Schmid, and he yeah. is uh, yes. In, ter- yeah. in terms of um, sort of realist painting, uh, he wrote the Bible, and his book is it became my Bible, and I I, I picked it apart. I, I went through it dozens and dozens of times, uh, took in all the information. I still use his colors as my palette of colors today, um, and I, I learned how to paint, and then I began to edit what what I was learning and combine it with what he was teaching and from there was able to sort of find my way forward in my own sort of unique manner as a painter. Yeah, that's so interesting. Mm. Well, can we talk about that transition from commercial work to becoming an artist and decide that decision to become an artist? Was there a catalyst for that? Yeah, I got married and... Um, <laughs> I made the decision on our, on my honeymoon, on our honeymoon, actually. Um, and so the, 
it had been a little voice inside my head for a couple of years and I think partially because I was I, the thrill of having your work printed on a major magazine that had completely gone by that time so I, I wasn't getting juiced up by by the profile of that it was more about what do I have to say do, is there more to me as an image maker than translating someone else's story someone else's vision do I personally have anything to say and I, I decided yes I did I didn't know what that was but I decided yes I did but I also knew from experience that if I waited any longer, because by this time I was, um, I was 30, about to turn 32, if I waited any longer, it was going to be difficult for me to make a transition and get to the level that I wanted to get to. Because um, I, I was doing very well as an illustrator. It was a successful career. I was, I was happy. I worked very hard to build it up. But I knew that if I um, tried to combine the two in any way, it just wouldn't work. Uh, I so I actually actually went about systematically um, di- dismantling my illustration career. But the decision was made literally on my honeymoon. I I were we're in Queensland and I got an email from a from a friend who um, she she basically telling me that a, a guy who'd been supporting my work for the last few years been buying my illustrations. But every time he'd buy, he'd bought like six or seven of them. Every time he'd buy one, he'd like, he'd come over and say, Robin, you know, when are you going to make some real art? And I'd say that not as an insult to illustrators. This is literally what he said. And like, I'd like, Sean, you know, this is real. Art. This is real in some sense. But he's like, you yeah. know what I mean? When are you going to do your own thing? And every, every time he would say this and, I got an email from his friend telling me that he had just passed away. Um, it was a, he was young. He was fifty years old. He was a doctor, and he just and he just had a heart attack and died. And and I got that email, and I like I'm getting goosebumps telling it because it, it was it just hit me at that at this moment in my life of, of immense change. I'd just gotten married. I was on my honeymoon, and I get this email, and this thing, this thought in my mind had grown to almost like a deafening roar at this time. And I get this email, says so like Rachel we got to talk. So I take Rachel outside and we, we're chatting. It's like, I can remember it was, it was like 35 degrees, hundred percent humidity. And I'm telling you like, I have to do this now. If I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it. Life is going to get even more complicated and it has to happen now. So we went back to Adelaide after the honeymoon and I thought, I don't know. I've got no idea what I want to paint. I've never even considered like really truly what I should be painting the only thing I can think to do is, is paint a self-portrait. But I've also got this other problem that I've never done an, a proper oil painting before. So, like, why not Why not kill two birds with one stone and mix that into a complete um, life-changing career move and, and put it all into one painting and, and also not tell anyone that I'm doing it. <laughs> so, I got back to Adelaide and I, and I started making this self-portrait. I, I stopped taking illustration work. I didn't tell anyone. I started doing this this painting usually so i was i was on a pace of making two to three paintings a week and and uh, this painting was was taking me weeks i had friends who would come over for for dinner and i'd hide the painting in a closet um the only people that knew were rachel and and my parents and um is that because you didn't want to put pressure on yourself yeah i didn't want i didn't i didn't want any i put enough pressure on myself i didn't want any expectations from anyone other than the, the massive crushing expectations that I had on myself. It was, it was enough to carry. And I also, I just enjoy, I just enjoy um, working on things secretively with a sense of secrecy. I, can't, I get a little kick out of it. So that was kind of pushing me along. So I made this painting. It took me, I was almost finished. It took me um, 
about a month and a half working full time on it. I couldn't believe that I I felt so indulgent to take you know more than a week to work on a painting. I was almost finished and I thought this thing's coming up. You know, it's pretty good. If my first oil painting, this, you know, this, there's hundreds of layers of, on this thing. There's so many mistakes, but it's come together. Um, what am I going to do with this thing? Because I want to develop a portfolio. It's going to be sitting in the closet for a year and a half while I work on a portfolio. What do I do with it? Mm-hmm. And it was at that time that um, I, I remembered like reading about art prizes in Australia. Obviously, I, I knew of the Archibald Prize. Didn't really know much about it, but I knew of it. Mm-hmm. So I Googled Archibald Prize and that had already passed for that year. And then I remembered there was another one that was like different with it, but, but more money. And, and I couldn't remember what it was. And I Googled it and I asked ah, the Moran Portrait Prize. And so I Googled it, and it, the deadline was, um, was a week away, but I hadn't finished the painting. So I, I sat down, and I worked through the night for the next few days, finished the painting, called, the, the art, called Artwork Transport, and said, can I get this um, to, to the Moran Portrait Prize for judging? And they, said, and they said to me, sorry, the truck just left this morning. You're, you're too late. Oh, my God. And I hung up the phone. I was like, well, I guess I can just keep going, but, you know, that kind of sucks. Two minutes later, the guy calls me back, and he's like, hey, um, we just spoke. Um, the driver's doing a pickup in the city. If you can get that painting into the city um, and meet him, he can take it. And so I threw the painting. I had no bubble wrap, no packaging, just the painting. Threw it in the back of the car, and I, I drove to this um, into the CBD in this and we pulled up, I knew the address, but it was this grimy little alleyway in the middle of the city and there's this truck with an open back and there's a guy standing next to it smoking a cigarette. <laughs> and I've got this thing that up until this point, like he was the fourth person to know about this painting. Yeah. And I take this painting out and I hand it to him and obviously it's a self-portrait so it looks like me and he kind of, I never forget, he like looks at the painting and then he looks at me and he looks at the painting and he looks at me and he's like, and like, kind of like pretty good, and um, and that was the first kind of positive feedback I'd ever had for for my for my uh, oil painting. So like, kind of meant a little bit to me. Yeah. Anyway, this thing goes in the truck, goes off to Sydney, and I thought, you know, what, you know, no harm, no foul. Let's just see what happens. And uh, um, two weeks later, I get an email from the organisers saying that I've been selected as a finalist. Wow! And it was it was like the most amazing. I couldn't. I just couldn't believe it. And I saw the list of the names. And by this time, I'd like started to like, I was full-time painting, oil painting and developing my work, but I was also full-time learning about art, the art industry and all the major players. And, and so I'm reading this list of names and I'm like, oh my goodness. And Fiona Lowry was the, one of the judges. And I was like, oh, this is, this is a, this is a big deal. I, I think, I think it's a big deal. Um, and then they contacted me and said, hey, if you're in Sydney, if you're coming to the opening, we've got the media call at 11 o'clock in the morning. You might you come to that if you want. I was like, yeah, sure, I'll be there. It'll be nice fun to meet all the other artists. And so I show up to the media call and I'm looking around and it's like me and, um, and, and two other artists. One of them is Michael Zavros. And um, I'm, looking, I'm thinking, there's not 35 other artists in the room. What's going on? And because um, I... I know it now, but at the time I didn't realize that if they tell you when, like, when the media call is and they want you to be there, there's a reason for it. I had no, I was such a noob, I had no idea, and I was completely unprepared. And then they announce um, 
that there's a, a co-runners up and they announce they say and one of them is a first time entrant to the prize and I just started crying I was like yeah I, I just because I, this because if you can imagine this was like the biggest this like I'd wrapped everything into this one painting like this life changing decision life changing moment and here it was this thing was suddenly being awarded and so I think that it was weird because I was, I was right next to um, Michael and if you know Michael he's He's very like he's such a he's a wonderful guy, so well put together. And I'm like, and he's there with his beautiful wife, and yeah, <laughs> and I'm there, and I'm just like I'm just a crying, heaving mess. And he's like, he's like, I'm sure he's thinking like, you're happy that you didn't win, and because obviously he won that year, and I'm crying over second place, and um, because as, as the greatest, and I and I just fumbled my way through like a speech, and anyway, so it was like this life-changing moment and it was at that moment I was kind of outed because I go back to the hotel room and um, I'm like laying on the bed just like my heart is pounding out of my chest and I start getting phone calls from my friends and they're like we just saw you on um, the news what's going like what are you doing in sit what no nobody knew (laughs) nobody knew Um, and I had to like sort of come out as an artist (laughs) which is which was a, quite a kind of a surreal thing, but um, yeah, I, I haven't looked haven't looked back. Well, exactly, but also somewhere inside of you, you must have realised that was an incredible painting. I mean, it's a painting of you standing. It looks like a door, actually. Is that was that a door? Yeah, I went to a, um, a like a, a one of those places that's a salvage warehouse. And they basically salvage all the window frames and the doors from these um, beautiful houses that are getting torn down and they sell them. And so I went in there and I picked through all of them and I said, can I please borrow this door? Because it's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And so I, I went back and set it up, photographed myself in front of it. Um, yeah, and I wore this the most ridiculous jumper that I've ever, you know, the, the detail on the jumper. But I just really, I, I really wanted to just, just go for it. Like this was like a... It's that moment of your life, and I've had a few since then, where you just kind of push all your chips in, and yeah. and um and that's what I was doing, uh, both sort of uh, my life sort of writ large, but all but but more specifically in this one painting, I just wanted to give it everything I had. And also, just for the listener, I mean they're probably aware of this by now, but you know you paint in an extremely realistic style, um, and. Mm. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of words that get bandied about, and I don't like sort of categorising people, but you know, sort of hyperrealism, photorealism, all that sort of thing. But uh, what do you do? You, I noticed that at one point you described it as high resolution painting. Mm. Would would you put a label on your style of painting? I try, not consciously, because it's so it's so connected to who I am that it's just it's just me. And this was something that I battled with for years was was this idea that I had to do something different. Like oh, growing up, even like the classes that I took, all of my teachers were like, "Robin, you got to loosen up. You know, you be expressive. Have you ever tried being expressive? Have you ever tried?" And and I felt this pressure to be something that I'm not. And it wasn't until I embraced exactly who I am, stretching all the way back to those drawings of copying Garfield comics and, and then copying basketball players. I just embraced that. And when I embraced that, that's when I truly sort of, I guess, began to move forward with my with my career as an artist. So I, I don't ever think of myself in terms of labels. Um, 
I, but I, the term hyperrealism sort of has come to sort of categorize sort of the modern, the contemporary artist who paints in a hyperreal, uh, in a in like super realistic manner, because um, photorealism is a very sort of. Um, it's a categorized, established term that speaks to a certain point in history, and so to say photorealism now is not really appropriate because that, that that's a v- very deliberate term that that has the artist, it, you know, and it's decades old. Hyperrealism now, I think, is what people most comfortably term it as, but I don't even I I, I don't bother myself with those kinds of labels, um, and I. And I, I, I just don't even think about it, honestly. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was. It's interesting after that recognition and the Doug Moore, and you know, you went on to become a finalist in the um, Archibald and also in the Utic Still Life Award, which that was an amazing painting too. I must say that okay. you know, there's all these selection of small Polaroids which you tape to a piece of ripped cardboard. Um, just incredible. So you must have that must have been a great period for you. Those few, I think it was only over a couple of years. You were st- really getting a lot of recognition. What what happened yeah. after that? Like, I think you got like gallery representation. Yeah. So to begin with, I was I was just trying to discover myself um, in an artistic sense, and so self. So the only thing that I knew was profound enough in my life and meant enough to me in my life to give it time to paint was was the things that I loved in my family so I painted myself first then I painted my father painted my um my mother's hands I painted my dad again um after he went through through some difficult emotional times um I and then I found the Polaroid painting with these Polaroids the romance of the Polaroid is something that really appeals to me not so much now because there's so many different ways, but when, back when I was growing up, when the Polaroid camera came out, it was a special moment that always resulted in the worst photos. But the moment itself that w- was deemed Polaroid worthy was so special. And so I found these old Polaroids that my mum had taken and I wanted to memorialize them in a painting. And so it was about developing a personal connection between the, what I could do with my hand and what I felt in my heart. And when I develop, when that connection strengthened, it was then that I was able to start translating that into different things and I felt like I was actually ready to finally produce a body of work and I knew that that body of work was not going to be um, paintings of my family the paintings of my family were vehicles to find that I used to find the thing that I was going to paint and so um, I took a portfolio of all these paintings very naively to New York City (laughs) I I figured I, I was successful as an illustrator in New York it's going to be just as easy to be as successful as an artist in New York. So I took the portfolio to New York first before I, before I even visited a single gallery in Australia. And I, I met with some galleries. I did this whole promotional thing and, it, and I got, actually got some meetings with galleries. And um, at the back of my portfolio, there was one painting. And it was the last painting I'd done before I had, had left for this trip. And it was a painting of my wife and she was wearing um, a plastic poncho. And... Every single gallery that I met with, they stopped at this painting and they're like, "Huh, what's the, what's this thing? Where, what, you know, whether they liked it or not, I didn't know, and I kind of didn't care. What I saw was a visceral reaction to that image, and at the same time, I'd been processing the painting of that image in my mind and um, had decided that this was the next body of work. And I I couldn't tell this to the gallery. I mean, I could, but they're not going to believe. You know, words mean nothing. I had literally one of these paintings in my portfolio. So um, 
after these meetings, I went back to Adelaide and I had one portfolio left because um, I'd given them away, essentially. And so I took it into Hillsmith Gallery. I was one of, at the time, was one of the most established galleries in Adelaide. Um, great reputation, really great artists. And um, I dropped it at the desk and I got a call from um, Margot Hillsmith uh, a few days later and she said, come in for a meeting. This was, I think, I want to say August of 2011. Mm-hmm. And they said, we've got a, we've got a slot or oh, July, maybe we've got a, we'd love to offer you a solo exhibition. And I was like, Whoa. wow. Okay. And I was, I was so ready for it, but the faith that they showed me was incredible. And, um, they said, there's one catch. Our only, uh, we've, we've usually got our, sh- our shows completely booked up by now for the following year. We've got one slot and it's in February. And I had one painting and I knew that this was literally like, this was my shot. And so I, I've never, if I hope I never work as hard um, again in my life as I did for that seven months, because I, I, I'm not exaggerating where I don't, where I, when I say I don't think there was an artist in the world who worked harder than I did or more hours than I did. It was, it was probably 90 hours a week for seven straight months. I completely disappeared off the face of the earth for family, friends, and um, and 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 my wife. It was not the best thing to have done. Um, and I had a lot of making up to do after, after. but um, <laughs> yeah. in the end, I, I came away with 15, 15 paintings um, for this exhibition, and uh, and I opened at Hillsmith. I think I want to say February, maybe February twelfth. But it was it, it, and for me, it was it was again this moment where you just push all in, because what I knew was that I was not going to make a lot of money from the exhibition because it was my first one, but all I wanted was just to make enough where I could bridge myself to the next exhibition. It sold out before it opened, is that right? It did. It did. I was, yeah, I was very fortunate. And I've, I've, I've written about this quite a bit because it was this moment of my life where um, it was a marker where basically I dropped the paintings in and, um, uh, or actually I hadn't dropped them in. I, I just sent photos of the paintings to the gallery and they put them up on their website or send them out to the collectors two weeks before the opening. And a couple of days later, they called me and said, you have sold seven. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. And then the next day they called and they said, we've sold another four. Wow. And then within a couple of days, it's like, there's one left. And, and, and I started to get, I got kind of pissed off because the one that was left, I, I felt was like the, one, of the, one of, if not the best paintings in the exhibition. I was like, come <laughs> on, you've got to sell that last one. It's the one with the guy the red, with the curly red hair. I don't know if you've seen that one. But that yeah, was the last yeah, one yeah. to sell there, and it's, it's probably the most famous one from the exhibition. Now it's been passed around the internet like many times, and eventually someone bought it. And um, so, like a week and a half, two weeks after the exhibition, it was completely sold out. And and I had another one. I, I'm I'm prone to the odd emotional breakdown, and I I just like it was just incredible, overwhelming. I can imagine. Is that about the time that your Facebook page went berserk and that every like I mean you've got about 200,000 followers on Facebook at the moment but, yeah uh, yeah it, it did yeah um, it, it happened um, uh, it doesn't happen so much these days and Facebook as an artist is you know it's com- it's almost completely dead since they changed like all the rules in terms of how many people see your page without paying for people to see it um, but there was an article that ran in so what happened was I had these paintings and I sent them to this one random tiny little art blog and this girl 
or lady, sorry, lady, she, she wrote about my work on this art blog and she wrote it as though I was a, a female and she was like her paintings are, and, <laughs> and it was just like, oh my gosh, she thinks I'm a, not that that's a big deal, but like it was just like, I mean, it was so obvious that I was new because she didn't even know whether I was a Yeah, boy or right. But someone else picked it up from her thing and then someone else picked it up from, and then before I knew it, I got an email from um, Daily Mail, which is like the most visited website in the world. It's like a completely trashy news website, but they wrote to me and said, can we post your work? And I was like, sure. And it just went bananas from there and I was getting like emails from all over the world and it happens every now and then to different artists and for me that was the moment it happened happened to me and and that that really helped um because the visibility of my work went through the roof which is something that I needed to do being now 34 years old my first solo exhibition and I'm kind of comparing myself to artists at the same stage of their careers and they're all in their sort of mid mid early mid maybe late 20s but mostly mid 20s and um and i'm like man i've got to i've got to move at twice the pace of these guys to be able to because i'm only like i'm thinking i'm only a couple years younger than michael zavros and he's <laughs> way out there and i'm like way and so like this athlete's mentality just started to come into my head and i'm just i've got to i've got to compete i've got to produce so, so next exhibition i'm going to give myself just a year to make my next exhibition which i did but yeah, at the same time, social media is really starting to kick off. And yeah, well, talking about Michael Zavros, didn't he give you a piece, good piece of advice early on in your career? He did. He he, and I don't know whether he uh, wittingly gave me or unwittingly gave me the, <laughs> this piece of advice. But I, we were so the opening of the Moran Portrait Prize where he won and I came second. They kind of jammed us together for this like really awkward photo opportunity. And um, but during that, we we had a like a discussion and and I told him what I was where I'd come from my history and this was my first painting and and what I wanted to do and how lost I kind of was and like I really didn't know what I wanted to do um and he just said to me look you can paint you can paint whatever you want but it's not so much so much about how you do it it's about what you choose to paint from here on out that's going to determine how far you go and um it sounds like simple advice but for me it because at the time I was all about flexing my muscles as a painter and, and the self-portrait, is, it's a clear example. I am showing off in that painting. It's like, look how I can paint this door. Look at how, all the details in the, in the jumper. Um, it's a real show-offy painting. And, um, and at the time I was thinking, I can go out and I can paint anything. And I, and I kind of felt at the time he was challenging me to paint anything, but then I realized, no, he's actually, what he's saying to me is, you, because you can paint anything, it's about showing discretion and making the right decisions. And so my life became um, an exercise in decision-making and trying to make the right moves every step of the way because I felt like I was on a compressed timeline having come to art at, at a slightly later age than I would have otherwise had hoped. You've had four solo shows in, in Adelaide and LA, but now... You, you're no longer with a gallery. You're totally self-represented. Um, mm. Can you tell me a bit about what made you decide that the gallery system was no longer going to work for you or that you just didn't want to pursue that anymore? Well, yeah. I, I say all of this with the caveat that I may very well return to the gallery system one day. Um, I don't know. But at, the, at this point in time in my career, being independent... And just doing my own thing is 
far and away the best thing for me and the results have proven that out um, would be on a shadow of a doubt but it all happened because my gallery in America closed um, like literally overnight and I had no idea I'd had two um, successful solo exhibitions with them I was anticipating having more in the future they'd been very supportive of me but as with a lot of things in the gallery world um, you never really know what's going to happen what goes on behind the scenes and they closed and so I found myself without a gallery uh, for the first time in my career and um, and also I, I had, the kids had just been born and um, I was going through a lot emotionally like rediscovering myself like you completely lose your identity when you have kids you know it all becomes about the kids I was struggling with that the gallery closed I didn't know what kind of artwork I was going to be making um, and so when I eventually just sort of discovered my path forward as an artist um, and I didn't have a gallery I, I sort of looked around the landscape and thought to myself I think this is something I can do myself because the work that I was selling um, was being sold the most recent pieces were being sold through Instagram um, where I would put a painting on my Instagram like a, like a work in progress and somebody would see it and I get a call from my gallery the next day and they say hey um, we just sold your painting and I was like oh how'd that happen oh, someone on Instagram messaged us it's like oh that's really interesting because that's my Instagram <laughs> and so but like you know when you're represented by a gallery you know if they're good they earn their money and so like I, I was cool with it but when they closed I was like well it's kind of all coming through me anyway and then it just kind of just started to happen more and more and more and I began to realize that because um, I, I always thought that inst- there's kind of like the term Instagram artist. It's a it's a pejorative term, and and there's a there's there's a perceived sort of limit as to what you can do if you're if you're relying on that as your primary um, means of selling your work. And so I was reluctant at the start, but then as these things started to happen, and I started to realize there are real collectors who are buying my work, who are finding it through Instagram. I've, I've developed the confidence to to just to just go it alone, um, and that's that's where I find myself today. That's so interesting, and uh, you know, it's uh, it's obviously something that's working for more and more artists now. Um, yeah, which I mean must be alarming for a gallerist, I must say. Well, I think you look at um, a, there's a very well known gallery in um, New York, Metro Pictures, and um, they just closed, and one of their reasons for closing in their press release was the increased agency that that artists have independent of a gallery and they can see this thing coming and 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 i kind of see i'm definitely not at a metro pictures level um but uh because they're they're like cindy sherman and all those kind of they're amazing but it, it kind of it works on down through through sort of the different levels of of the art world and um because collectors want just like everyone, they want an authentic experience and connecting personally with the artists themselves is really appealing for a, for a collector. Yeah. Um, so I, I, they're, they're, having said that, I, I do believe that it's um, there are a particular sort of type of artists that this works for. I'm definitely one of them, um, but there are artists that this definitely would not work for. So I'm not saying this is like a, um, so, like a movement that's going to sweep the world and before you know it, there are going to be no galleries because I don't think that it works for a lot of artists. But for me, being someone who's sort of self-motivated, organized, 
enjoys kind of the, talking about and promoting my own work, but also I have a style of working that is self-evident in its quality, I think. And um, there's not a lot of mystery around my work. Um, yeah. it, works, it works for me. And there's a lot of artists that I think it would work for that are probably going to make that move in the near future. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right about that. I think you need the personality to be able to uh, promote your own work. And you, you're not only good at that, you're also good at connecting with your followers. Because you do so much live Instagram, you're so open about your process, you're so helpful to people, they really respond to that. And then that, I think that this part of, of getting your name out there in a way, isn't it? I mean, just being yeah, you, you, being you have to out give there in order to get. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. Cynically, you could say it's all about content generation, but really, um, the most successful Instagrams, and I'm by no means one of those. I think are the ones that connect authentically, and so I just mm. try to be authentic. And, and one of those things that, that that is part of the way I am is that I I enjoy helping and and sharing my information because. Uh, it's what I wish I had had at the start of my career and eventually when I found it and I had those people who, who, who helped me in my career, it, it's the kind of thing that can put rocket boosters on your, on, your, on your progress if you can just find someone who believes in you, who can, who can answer a few of the questions that you can't answer yourself and I, I get such a kick out of, of doing that for other people when I'm able to. Well, when you compare the times we're living in now to the times when you were learning how to oil paint, it's so different, isn't mm. it? I mean, if you wanted to find out this information, there's no, you know, it would have been a dream back then to be able to watch somebody painting their painting as you do and just answering questions as they come up on Instagram from your followers, yeah. which is just, I mean, I enjoy just watching those, just listening to you. And I'm sure, you know what, I think a lot of painters would probably have that on in the background and just listen to you talking <laughs> while they're painting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like to do it with other painters when, when I can find some painters that, that do the same thing. It's, um, it, it's, not, it's not common, I think, because... Not so common because it, when, when you paint, it shifts your thinking into a different part of your brain. And for some people, that's the same part of your brain that is the talking part of your brain. And for me, it's so strange. I can literally feel my brain working in two different places, like the paintings over here and the talkings over here. And the two don't really rub up against each other. Occasionally they do. And like, like I was just stopped talking for a couple of minutes while I'm solving a problem. But it's because my process is um, automatic now. Like I don't really struggle when I paint. It's more just about execution. And so I'm able to able to talk and I, I mean it helps to break up you know the loneliness of the studio which is something that kind of creeps on you as, a, as an artist yeah well I've, yeah I think sometimes you say I'll, I'll answer your questions in a second and you'll just keep painting well something like color mixing must be hard to do while you're thinking to answer a question I'd, I, color mixing I find you need to really focus and concentrate do you think do you find that is that the sort of thing you're talking about um no, it's sort, it's sort of. I guess it's more like when I when when something is really confusing to me on the surface. Like when I say confusing, when I don't know what what I'm trying to do, um, and that's generally um, will make me sort of stop working on an area and jump to to another area of a painting. And during that process, that's where my brain sort of I have to give my full brain to it. In terms of like the color mixing and and maintaining a value structure. Um, it's really just it's it's super automatic for me now, and it's 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 weird to say that 
Yeah, because I, I am sort of crossing the whole color spectrum from warm to cool, dark to light throughout through the surface of a painting. But um, I've done it so much now, um, every day for the last I don't know how many years of my life, and and the way that my brain works, I am constantly thinking as I'm painting in a very simple way. And so, like the the, the way that I think is, um, I have two levers in my brain that I'm always pulling on. One is lighter, lighter, darker, and the other is warmer or cooler. And so the way I can explain that is as I, I put something on my surface, um, usually I always start with the darkest color, and then I'll work out from that, reacting to what's already been put down on the canvas. So, so as I move out from that dark color, I think to myself, the next thing that I put next to it, it needs to be lighter than that dark color. Now, does it, is it going cooler or is it going warmer? And so then I know, being so intimately familiar with my palette of colors, it's it's kind of like that. That's my um, the, my palette of colors. It's like my vocabulary. It, it's the words that I use to write my story, and I'm so familiar with it that I can just automatically go to that one color, that that terra rosa and yellow ochre, and just put it in there. And I know exactly where it's going to take me. Um, I talk about colors. Um, how you use your colors of vehicles to drive yourself around the color spectrum. And I know that if I want to get over there to that sort of that, that murky sort of brownie yellow color, I need to take um, my Terra Rosa and yellow ochre cars and jump in those cars and drive <laughs> over there. And that's just the way I think. And I'm always pushing, pulling lighter, darker, warmer, cooler and reacting to what has come before. Is it a limited palette that you usually use? I mean, do you find the same colors end up on your palette? always the same i have um what what i think for when people look at my work of what you would you'd be shocked to see how few colors i actually use primarily i'm using ultramarine blue transparent oxide red terra rosa alizarin crimson cadmium red yellow ochre and titanium white it's just at seven colors if you if you're including white um then i have a, a range of what i call so those are my like standard colors that's a lot of reds i'm surprised how many reds there are yeah so the only the only two cool colors on my palette are blue and white everything else is warm um yellow can kind of float in between depending like yellow is we're getting into the i'll get into the i could get into the weeds here but yellow you know it's cooler than red and alizarin crimson so you can actually use it to pull something around towards green a little bit drive you around the color wheel towards green but um i can't paint a vibrant green um, obviously with that so if there's any green um, then I'll bring in I have I have guest colors I call them guest colors so seven stable colors then the rest are guest colors that if I need them they can come in as guests on my palette but they have to earn their spot they, there needs to be a reason that they are coming into my palette so there's um, viridian green uh, permanent and permanent green light I also use um, uh, zinc blue which is phthalo blue mixed with zinc with zinc white um, that's a that's a high chroma lighter value blue, and then I have the yellows cadmium yellow, and uh, lemon uh, cadmium lemon, and that's basically I'm trying to think, um, other, unless I've got like some crazy bright orange in there, that's basically it. And those colours very rarely, very rarely make it onto my palette. Yeah, right, and not yeah. black, obviously. No, um, I. So when you when you sort of go to a traditional painting class, you may hear a teacher tell you never to use black. That's like I feel like that's telling someone never to, like telling someone never to use white. Um, 
But people, the reason people say that is because you don't know what's in the black and you don't know what it's going to do. And pe- there's a way of thinking where if you just just using black as a way to darken something, but black is a color. Black is made up of colors. And um, so you can tell what is in the black. You just mix it with a little bit of white and you can see whether it's like a, a warm black, like a Mars or a lamp black or a cool black, like a um, like an ivory black whether there's a blue or green base to it. And so once you know what's in it, you can use it just like another color. You just got to know what's in it. But I find the color so strong and, and so just um, almost lifeless that it, I don't need it. I, I mix a chromatic black with just ultramarine blue and, and uh, transparent oxide red, which gives me a, a nice warm black that I can work out from because it works with all the other colors in my palette and I can move out from that using other colors in my palette. Yeah, right. What about earth yeah. colours? I mean, I noticed you use it for underpainting. Would you use it mm-hmm. for any other purpose? Mm, no, not really. Um, so, well, burnt umber is, is what the colour I use for my underpaintings. Um, and I could put burnt sienna on my palette and use it, but I use uh, terra rosa, which is a sort of a, I guess, a slightly pinker version of, of burnt sienna. And so like, it really wouldn't matter to me if somebody just said you can't use that anymore, you have to use burnt sienna. I just, I just adjust for it. But, mm. um, yeah, the burnt umber I just, I'd use as a really traditional um, underpainting. When I, when, I, when I do an underpainting, which is rare now, I used to do them all the time where I'd put down a, a complete layer of, of burnt umber and then um, do the grisaille method with um, you heighten it with white. And you basically you build up all the tones uh, with with white, which gives you that real traditional sort of Flemish, what people would think is like the tr- Flemish style of underpainting, um, but then I just paint over the top of it. So I started to think, why am I doing this? Yeah, um, why would you do it? Because I know you did it recently. I saw on yeah. Instagram. Why why would you use it on that painting? I think well, I think to begin with, it was to feel like when I was first thing it was using it, it was to feel safe and to feel that I knew where I was going, and also to lay out a value map so I could sort of half solve the problem of of the darks and lights. Because as a realist painter, maintaining your value structure of, of dark to light is probably eighty percent of the journey towards a successful painting. If you lose the values, you lose the painting. Mm. So that would lock in the value somewhat, but also just kind of make the thought process a little more comfortable. The reason I just did an underpainting with my most recent painting was because it's an extremely dark painting. And trying to paint a chromatic black over onto a white canvas while possible is uncomfortable and I don't think it leaves a very attractive paint surface um, because it's a lot of dabbing and a lot of just kind of trying to finesse the paint to get coverage. Whereas if I lay down burnt umber, I can just go over it with a chromatic black and it just covers beautifully because you can't tell where there's like kind of little bits of transparency because that burnt umber underneath just um absorbs all all of the uh the white canvas that was behind it so that's why that's why i did that just to just to sort of get the the value structure sort of set up for a smoother painting because it's such a huge painting it's um it's eight feet tall so wow. I, I yeah i just looking for i always efficiency is a huge part of my process and i have to be efficient because of how relatively time consuming my work is so anything I can do to trim the the time it takes me to make a painting down without losing quality I'll do it um which uh which is like underpainting which means tracing or projecting all those kinds of things I have no problem doing them because the result's going to be the same it's just the one will take me 
less time. And as I always say, like, like you see, if you can save, um, you know, an hour a day, it translates to four or five weeks in a year. Four, that's time to do, to do one more painting, and that could be the painting that changes your life. You know, and so I always say, you know, one painting, one painting can change your life, and so you should paint accordingly. Yeah. And 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 that's the thing. And one single paintings have changed my life, changed my career. So I'm always looking to squeeze as much time out of my uh, out of my day as possible. So when you're actually um, creating the work, are you really strongly um, guided by the reference material as far as colour goes? I mean, are you going to mix that colour so that you think that is exactly that colour? Or do you give yourself a bit of leeway? No leeway. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm trying trying to... So I work off a computer screen, um, which I wouldn't recommend for everyone, but that's what I do. Uh, My eyes can kind of interpret what I see, and I try to replicate what I see exactly. Um, and and if if I feel the color needs to be stronger, I will strengthen that color in Photoshop, so I know what I want to do when it comes to painting it on the canvas. Um, it's very rare. I can't. I'm trying to think if there was ever an instance where I just punched something up. I don't think there. No, I don't think there is. I I just I follow I follow my reference religiously, because that's that's the language that I that I speak with when I paint. Um, some people may not like that, but that's just that's yeah. Me. yeah. That's interesting that you say you use you work from a screen because I would have thought that would be a bit harder mm. than matching a color, say to a you know a printed. You know, I've seen videos where they where you match the color and you actually put a bit of the color on the actual you know surface of the print of the printed yeah. page or whatever. Um, when you're working from a screen, is it because you've had so much experience that you don't need to you, you can tell if it's matching or not? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think it's tendency when you look at a screen, your eyes kind of get blown out a little bit because um, the screen's backlit and you make the shadows a little lighter than they should be because you can see so much detail on a screen. You look into those shadows, it's like when you walk into a dark room and your eyes adjust to the darkness of the room and you see more than you did when you walked into the room initially. Same with painting. When you look into the shadows, you see more than there than you really should see. And that's really easy to do when you look at a screen. So things tend to blow out if you're not careful. But if you if you know how to translate what you're seeing to to what you're thinking, to what you're mixing, to what you're putting on your canvas, um, I don't see much of a difference. In fact, I prefer it because I can get much more detail. Like I, I couldn't do uh, how how would I do like a six foot by eight foot painting if I'm working on, off of printouts? I'd have to get a hundred printouts. And I, I can't stand. I can't stand dealing with a printer. I don't have. I've banned printers from my studio. I can't. I don't want to deal with printouts because they get folded. They get messy. Um, so yeah, a screen just works for me. Can we go back a step? Because a huge part of your work is obviously the step, the first step, which is photography. Can you give me an idea of what that is going to involve? Maybe in the context of your most recent body of work, which is this glorious wrapped paintings uh where you've you you're painting masterpieces from the you know part from hundreds of years ago uh wrapped in all different materials plastic bubble wrap uh foam sheeting all different sort of textured surfaces when mm-hmm. you're photographing that what can you give me an idea of how that's going to go uh it's painful <laughs> uh, i know exactly how to do it but getting it right 
sometimes takes me five days and it's it's the it, I dread it but it's it's the it's the point in the process where uh, the art really happens so the process is um, you could so for instance like Mona Lisa you can find like a half a gigabyte file of the Mona Lisa that that is legally downloadable and then you can take that and I get it printed they print it the size of the original on paper meanwhile I go and get um, a, a canvas stretched at the size of the also at the size of the original I get both in the studio at the same time I take the printout and I um, place it onto the surface of my painting and tape down the edges so basically when you hold it up it looks like the painting mm. um, it's the same size it's a printout so like the details are better you're not, not get it. I used to get them printed on canvas but then I realised you lose a bit in the details so they're printed on paper um, and then from there it's a question of I've got to wrap this thing in a way that looks good and I've got to light it in a way that looks good and so that is that's where it's really difficult and I'm gradually getting slowly even though I've been doing this work for a few years now getting better at it um, like the one behind me for instance that was I'm not kidding five to six days of 9am to 6pm wrapping photographing punching the air in frustration and, and leaving the studio knowing that I didn't get it would you light it in daylight or would it be artificial yeah, light? Or? It only, with, with the plastic, it only works with, with daylight and indirect daylight. So like window light, basically. So it has, it has to come from an angle, but it can't be direct. So I have to like close off parts of the studio, open some blinds up, wait for the right time of the day, and then hope that I wrap this thing in a, in a way that looks, looks good and... Um, because you make one mistake with that wrap in it and you have to trash the whole thing. Um, it, it's, and then I, I go home and I hope that I've got it and I spent, and I, but I know that I haven't, but I spend the next four hours of that night trying to, because I can't photograph it, playing with the image to see whether I can make something from it and then I come back the next morning more frustrated but a little bit wiser. Yeah. How was it doing the cellophane photos? Because I love those paintings you did of just like a scrunched up piece of cellophane. Uh, yeah. Similarly with the aluminium foil, the, the scrunched aluminium foil, but the cellophane in particular, uh, I can imagine yeah. that must have been quite tricky to get right as well. Yeah, that's uh, actually um, a, a process and a setup that I developed um, back in my first exhibition I recently did a pink one um, for, a, for a collector in Australia actually and um, I had to conjure this setup again because when I did it back in Australia I had a backyard and I had this whole thing that I could set but, but I don't have as much space here and I don't have the setup but what that is is, is essentially building um, a light tent so in natural daylight where the sun hits it and all the light and, it, and it's, it's sort of wrapped in in um, builder's plastic so it's really thick translucent plastic so the light hits it and just scatters and so there's top down lighting but there's light everywhere like you walk inside this thing and you can't open your eyes it's so bright well that's interesting with those cellophane ones the subtlety of the shadows is just superb you know and i suspect mm. that shadows are really important with this sort of work particularly yep. with the plastic you know the wrap, the wrapped paintings, um, but also yeah. you know in that polar that painting you did with the UTIC prize with the Polaroids. Yeah, sh- shadows are. Um, that's what I, I, 
that's I feel like that's where the the painting has a lot of life. People would typically think that it's it's in the highlights, but it's in the shadows where the paint is the most transparent, um, where the painting sort of breathes a little more because there's there's just less paint there because there's less light there, yeah. and it's that contrast between the, the thinner paint in the shadows and the thicker paint in the highlights. I think that makes the highlights so impactful. Um, but also, sh- shadows are a great design tool as well. Mm. Whether they're whether they're hard shadows like in that Polaroid painting that was spotlit, um, or they're softer shadows like the um, like the cellophane pieces, they really they, they describe a mood. They describe a time of day, um, and that that gives, like long long hard shadows makes you feel like the day is ending, like like you're in the twilight of something. Whereas these um, softer, more ethereal shadows takes you into this place where you're not really sure where you are or, or what's going on. It's otherworldly almost, and and so they they really can transport the viewer into a different emotion, which is weird because it's just a shadow. But you know it, that I, that's definitely a big focus of how I design a painting. Yeah. And do you find it hard to get into the flow once you start? Like, is there anything or any anything you need conditions you need in the studio for that to happen? Um, no, no, I'm just, I'm just in like instantly. Like for me, it, I've never had that, um, thing that a lot of artists have where they ha- really have to be in the mode and, and, you know, they'll procrastinate until for, I, I've never been like that. I, I think that that really goes back to my background in, in athletics and sports where, you know, you just have to, you just show up and practice no matter how you're feeling. And sometimes you know what? I'm, I'm not going to say it. it's going to sound weird, but I'm never, I never have a bad day because I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting down just doing the thing that I love. I mean, it's amazing. I'm so, I'm so, so thankful to be able to do it, and I just, I get such satisfaction. And it's funny because people always say to me, "Oh, you're so patient," but patience, I feel, uh, connotes a sense of endurance and perseverance. I don't have, I'm, I'm probably the most impatient person that I know because I'm I'm desperate to finish my work but it's just moved slowly because of the way I do it but I'm always feeling gratified and satisfied by what I'm doing so there's never a struggle it's never a sense of having to wait around for the result to emerge because um, I'm I'm lucky in that the way I paint it's gratifying 100% of the time so I'm, I'm, I'm really not a patient person even though people that's the that's the one personality trait that people will most regularly pin on me now I think it's pretty obvious to everybody that's been listening to this podcast that you are very open about your process which is a is a dream for you know art students but you also you also haven't had an art school in Adelaide what are the most common mistakes that you see students making when they're starting to learn to paint well, the biggest mistake they make is is they get is they give up. Um, that's the main f- focus of my teaching is to build a foundation where, when the frustration hits and they're tempted to give up, you can you can backtrack and it's almost like contact tracing. You can contact trace to use the vernacular back to where the problem began and build back up from there. Um, I like to try to teach people how to be both. I always say you've got to be both a, um, a doctor and a surgeon. You need to be able to diagnose and operate. Mm-hmm. And um, and the biggest problem that I like, specifically speaking, one of the biggest problems I see in students when they're trying to paint realistically, particularly portraits, is they use too much white. That's a very specific problem, and all students do it because they don't know how to take the value from from dark to light. 
by using color, by using chroma, right? So like when you think about color, um, uh, yellow ochre is a lighter color than burnt sienna, right? So you can mm. lighten the burnt sienna by adding yellow ochre, but most people just want to lighten it. They'll just throw in some white. And as you add white, you just add more white. And before you know it, the color drains out and you've got this weird kind of uh, pastel looking um, thing because people treat color when you don't know better, you treat color like value. So value um, is mixed on a, in a straight line from dark to light. Color is mixed in a curve, right? So you mix from dark to light, but also that, that color is going to bend from um, where it starts to something warmer or something cooler, depending on, on, uh, on the light source, right? So as it moves, as the color moves uh, from, from darker to lighter, the light source is going to start affecting that color and it's going to make it either warmer or cooler. And so being able to do that without using overusing white is, a, is one of the real, um, it's the most difficult thing for a student. Because mm. um, we always start out black and white and, and they do their underpaintings, they do their black and white studies and everything seems great. But then color, it's like bringing that third ball when you're juggling. It's just, it's so much that it just all falls to pieces. But if you just persist, you can figure it out. Yeah. And is that how you learned about colour, just through experimentation or did books or what? how did you learn? Um, one book, that Alla Prima, Everything I Know About Painting, that's the one book that is, it's the only book that's worth the money. Other books, um, they'll look great on your shelf and you might get a little bit out of them. But um, this book, um, I've, I've said it before and I'll say it again, Knowing what I know now, that book costs like 120 bucks. If somebody took all my painting skills away and um, knowing what I know about what that book says and they said this book's going to cost you $10,000, I'd put the money down tomorrow. Yeah, right. It's the best investment I ever made um, in, my, in my work. And, um, and that's where I learned about the principles and I was able to sort of translate what I was reading into, into um, actual sort of results on the canvas by only one way and that's just sitting in front of a painting for hours and hours and hours and that's really the only way in the end but but it's but it's about having the right thoughts in your mind and we go back to that idea of i spoke about earlier of intention um to have intention you need to have education because if you don't have education you don't know what your intent is and so um, reading those books and, and watching DVDs and learning from, from other teachers when possible. You educate yourself so when you go to paint, you at least have the intention in your mind. Your execution has to come up to meet your intention but and that's just about time in front of a canvas but you don't get there without the intention. That's really great advice actually. Um, now can we just talk about, just before we wrap it up, I... You've got a big, exciting project happening, which is coming up this time next year. And I know a lot of it's under wraps at the moment, but is there anything you can tell us about it? Because it sounds extremely exciting. Yeah, I, I'm very excited. It's, it's, um, it was supposed to happen uh, the end of this year, but obviously with COVID, we had to push it back. But essentially, as a self-represented artist, um, it's tempting to just sell your work and never be public-facing with your work. But I've, I feel that exhibiting the work is still a vital part of an artist's practice but without a gallery i've got to do that myself and at the same time i don't want to just hang my work on a wall and walk away and that's 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 the entire experience so i've been producing these paintings the wrapped paintings for for a while now um when i began doing them 
uh, there was no context to why I was doing them. I specifically chose some of the most famous paintings in history purely to redirect the course of my career um, and for it to be sort of for people to know that I was doing this now because I knew if, it, if, I, if I did the Mona Lisa people would people would pay attention because it's the Mona Lisa but uh, all along I've had this dream and this intention of giving the work the context that it needs and in an amazing um, coincidence or, or just this something that happened basically I got a, I got an email one or a message one day from this guy named David Corrins and David um, I didn't know who he was at the time but um, he emailed me asking if I'd be interested in doing a commission painting for him of a wrapped painting essentially but he had his DM he had a little blue check by his name and I was like huh interesting so so I, I googled him and I saw, I realized that David um, is is regarded as the the world's preeminent set designer he has literally done the TED Talk on set design. Wow. He was Kanye West, creative director, designing his sets for his world tours. He works, worked with Lady Gaga. He's an Emmy Award winner. And he, and he is also one of the people behind the, the biggest musical in the last 20 years, Hamilton. So anyway, so I did this painting for him. And during the process of the painting, we became friends. And now we're working on this thing. So essentially, it's a project. I can't give away too much because of because the secrecy sort of is part of the concept but essentially david is going to be building something incredible in which my paintings are going to be exhibited and the entire thing is going to be an experience in and of itself so it's not just an exhibition of my work it's going to be a fully immersive art experience in which people can go in and experience the work but also have an interaction with it that I think speaks to the larger concept of the work. So yeah, it, it's a really big deal for me. Um, it's a culmination of years of, of thought and, and of work, and I'm working on the pieces now. I'm trying to get 17 paintings and um, working on a sculpture as well, which um, I haven't actually told anyone. You're the first person I've publicly <laughs> mentioned this to, but I'm working on a sculpture too. So that will be something that um, you guys will sort of see over the next next few months and is that going to be LA or New York or somewhere else it's going to be New York City um we're hoping this time next year early spring New York City next year um so there's a lot to organize a lot of paintings to finish but um I'm over halfway through now so the paintings are are on track and you know it's I'm very fortunate it's one of those things where this is all um self-generated self-funded no gallery um so I've had I've started to um, I have to pre-sell the work in order to fund, to fund the exhibition. So I've been very fortunate in that a lot of the collectors and supporters of my work have already purchased the paintings. A lot of the paintings that I've made, most of the paintings I've made, and some that I haven't even made. So I know now that I'm going to be able to do the show. Up until then, it was a question of can we get the finance? We have the finance now. So now it's just a, mo- a question of, uh, of executing and, and, and doing it in the best way we possibly can. So exciting. And hopefully by then, you know, COVID will be a distant memory and, you know, it'll be a whole renewed yeah. sort of feeling in New York, I can imagine, by then, hopefully. I hope so. I think it, I, I, don't, I, still, I still fully anticipate that people will be wearing masks and all that kind of stuff. But I do think the level of comfort of people being in the indoor setting with other people around them will be changed and if it's not by spring next year then we're not going to have the exhibition we're just going to we're just going to push it down 
till um, till autumn of next year, autumn over here, which will be like sort of um, August, September, um, October time, because having people comfortable and being able to come into the exhibition is everything for this exhibition. And I'm patient. I can I can deal with it. It'll just make the exhibition stronger, give us more work to to, to um, make it a better experience for people. I'm in no I'm in no rush, but at the same time, I'm like. I'm in a real rush to make this stuff. Well, I tell you what, you know what I'm hoping for? I hope that international travel happens before then so that we can make it as well. Yeah, that, that's the, I have so many people that want to come. I want my, I'm desperate for my parents to come over and, and see. I have so many people that said this. I, I've never been to New York. This is, I, I love this to be my first time. So, um, yeah, my fingers are, my fingers are crossed. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm hopeful very hopeful yeah yeah well good luck Robin and thank you so much for your time today I've really enjoyed talking with you my pleasure and thank you for this podcast I think it's an amazing service to to the arts and artists as a whole it's been a pleasure to be on it What an interesting artist. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Robin Ely. I'll keep you updated on social media, on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter with what's happening with that amazing show, which will hopefully eventuate next year. Also, I'm pretty excited that Talking With Painters is at the moment at the top of the Apple Podcasts all-time Australian visual arts charts. So thank you to all of you for listening and for spreading the word about the podcast. It is very humbling. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. When I teach, that's always what I'm trying to push to the students is, is maintaining that focus on painting with intention. So you see, you see the thing that you want to paint, you hold it in your mind, you go to your palette and you, you know what you're trying to mix instead of just trying to find it on the palette, you kind of have an intention. You may not mix it, but at least then you know what you tried to do didn't work, so you can kind of basically divine your way to to a better result. Without that intention, um, then you're really just going to be spinning your wheels. <laughs>